Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. Good to be back in the studio. Yes, it is. We batched a recording like maybe a yep. month ago. Where I was in New York. Well, I was in New York for a while, so we did it kind of remotely, and now we're yeah. back together. And you got stuck by those Nor'easters. I did. Three, Three in, in a row. row. <laughs> it was crazy. And Betsy and I are just back from Jamaica. Yes. I was sitting next to a gentleman. And this is a funny story for Your you. Your cornrows look amazing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We were at a decently nice resort. Betsy does all the research and gets me there, right? Yeah, yeah. But we're sitting next to a gentleman who looked exactly like Cory Booker, the senator oh, yeah. <laughs> from New Jersey. And I'm pretty convinced 15 minutes in, this is Cory Booker. <laughs> because he wouldn't tell me really what he did. Uh-huh. He was just like, well, I was here on business. So I decided to stay a couple days. You know, what do you do? I do a lot of things. It's hard to talk about. Where are you from? New Jersey. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then he's like, did you read the New York Times article this morning about Africa and what's going on with global warming? And I said, well, I actually happened to read that article. He talked about that. I'm like, this is Cory Booker. <laughs> Sitting next to Cory Booker. Anyway, he was saying he's missed all three Nor'easterns and that it let yeah. me know what you were dealing with. I ran up to the room real quick, Googled on my phone, wasn't Cory Booker. I've never been so let down. <laughs> I think he's a shoe salesman. But I thought I had an hour conversation with Senator Booker, Uh and uh, it was interesting. But the Nor'easter, you escaped. You were there, though, and you narrowly got out. Well, no, all my stuff was canceled like the day, and I ended up having to go to like Houston. Yeah, it took you all day to get home. But I'm here. But you're actually here. And we love our jobs. Yes, we do. And today we're going to talk to Ron Clark. Yes. Ron Clark, he wasn't Teacher of the Year, but he was like Disney's Teacher of the Year or something like that. Ron Clark, he got well-known because Oprah made him famous. Well, uh, he also had a viral video of him dancing with his students. Right. Yeah. He did this sort of dancing thing with some of his students, and dude was spot on every... You could tell this was hours and hours of learning this dance. (laughs) And he's a principal of a school, and his story is he worked at a school, he noticed that most of the teachers didn't have a lot of energy, and they sat most of the time, they didn't stand, and they were really not helping in terms of student learning. Yeah. And it drove him crazy. And so he started his own school. Yeah. He has so much energy, he started his own school, hired the best teachers in the world, created an amazing school outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and now thousands of teachers a year fly to learn from him best yeah. practices in teaching. Yeah. He's a phenomenal guy. Yeah. And then he wrote a business book, because so many people were like, well, how do you get an organization to be this vibrant? He wrote a business book called Move Your Bus, and he basically says, it's like the Flintstone bus, all the feet are under the bus kind of moving it. And he's <laughs> yes. like, he said, look, you got runners, you got walkers, you got sitters, sitters, you got all these... And you need to basically turn everybody into a runner. Yeah. And that got me thinking about times, jobs, honestly. Yeah. We're going to talk about this, where I've been a runner and times when I've been a walker. Yeah. Same guy. Yeah. Different jobs. I'm either bad for your team or good for your team. Yeah. I think as the older I got, the more runner I became. But do you think <laughs> you know? but do you think that was Truthfully. because you got into positions where your skills were being used yes. and you knew yourself well enough to know yes. this is what I want to do? I think after I became so I did improv comedy and toured around for a while and I kind of pursued that dream. You must have been exceptional. It was so fun. It really <laughs> I mean, the touring was exhausting, but like being on stage and doing improv with two of my best friends was like the funnest thing ever. It really was exhausting. But when I took the leap into comedy and did that professionally for like three years, that really showed me like I don't have to settle for a job. I 
sold my house, gave everything away and really just took the leap into following my passion and dream and kept saying to myself, the worst that can happen is I move onto a friend's couch. Like that's the worst. (laughs) And I did that and I was able to do it for three years and pay for my, I got into grad school during that time, paid for grad school and kind of ended up doing some TV and film through that and really just started exploring and living out my dream. I would say since then I have not taken a job that I didn't want to run in. And it's because I was actually at the point in my life where I had developed enough skills, I had developed enough connections that I had the skills to succeed. I wanted to invest in the cause and the values of what I was stepping into. And I would say, honestly, since I did comedy, there hasn't been a job that I haven't felt like that I wanted to be a runner. Now, when I was in college- Including your story brand job? It's still out for debate. (laughs) No, not true. I want to sprint the heck out of this job. But when I was in college, I I was a weight room supervisor. And if you are looking at me right now, you would say- That's where you got your nickname, Squat Rack. I did. It's like two years ago. You had that nickname for like five minutes. I don't know what that was (laughs) from. We need to bring that back. No, I don't think we do. Okay. And (laughs) But I was a weight room supervisor, and I would have to open the gym at the college that I worked at. And you hated it? Yeah. And I would like lay down on the weight bench and take a nap. Like I would basically, I was not a good spotter. I just basically like opened the doors, laid down, and took a nap. Here's the thing I believe about your job in the weight room. Yeah. I think somebody could have made that for you. A leader could have stepped in and made that a job that you loved somehow. Yeah. Because they could have gotten to know you. Yeah. So I had a similar job. For four years, I delivered Chinese food. (laughs) And I got to be honest, I actually really liked the job because Uh you got tips. It was pretty good money. And basically, it was me daydreaming, listening to Def Leppard tapes, driving into the suburbs of my South Houston town yeah. and delivering Chinese food. So I just got to listen to music and drive, yeah. which I still actually love to do. It was like every day was a road trip that <laughs> I got paid for. But if somebody would have just come to me and said, Don, how do you think we could increase delivery sales? Can you just brainstorm on that, on Noodle on that? They would have gotten thousands of dollars of free work from me. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't have known it at the time. Yeah. That question would have lit me up. Yeah. I would have blanketed neighborhoods with flyers. Every time I delivered something, I would say, do you know anybody else in your neighborhood who likes Chinese food? And if you give me their name, we'll actually deliver something for free to them and we'll credit you with it. Yeah. I would have just all day long, I would have thought yeah. of those things and it would have actually lit me up. And that's one of the things that this interview actually talks about. You know, He says there are runners, joggers, walkers, riders, and then there are drivers, the leader who's actually creating the culture can turn probably walkers into joggers and joggers into runners. Yeah. He also gets really serious. There's people you just got to let go. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about education, it's scary, but you really want the best in yeah. the business teaching your kids. And yeah. I just thought it was fascinating. You and I experienced something interesting recently. You know, we have a pretty good culture here at StoryBrand. Uh-huh. And we were trying to decide whether or not to buy a building. Yep. And I couldn't decide. We've outgrown our current space. Outgrown our current space. Yeah. But there's some options. There's a couple options, and one of them is cheaper than the other one. One of them is more corporate. One of them is more homey, kind of virtual work and all that kind of stuff. I really couldn't decide what to do. And it was like a month of just crunching the numbers. And it was one of those things where you just go, both decisions seem great. Yeah. Like, there's not a bad decision here. Yep. So I called a meeting. We had a five-minute meeting with the team. And I said, here's where I'm at. I don't know what to do. What do you want to do? To the whole team, all the yeah. way from customer service up to the you guys in the leadership. And everybody gave their feedback, and it was really great. 
And then we got more positive comments out of that meeting. Like, you know, you as chief yeah. of staff started meeting with people and saying, I really loved that. Yeah. What well, was the highlight of your week? Yeah. And it moment. was a complete accident. Yeah. I didn't realize, like, me just sitting down going, hey, you guys make this decision. What do you think is wise here? Yeah. It was not designed it to, It was like, not designed <laughs> to increase to, morale yeah. or boost morale or even give ownership. It was just, you needed all of our opinion and everybody gave it. But the light went on for me of saying, there's little things that you can do as the leader that takes joggers and makes them runners. Yeah. Takes walkers and makes them joggers. And it all comes down, I think, to ownership. Yep. Have you given ownership over to the people who work with you? Yeah. Because that's what they want. That gives them meaning in their work. That lets them find their skill sets where they shine and love coming to work every day. Yeah. It doesn't replace a good salary, yep. but it complements a good salary pretty darn well. Yep. And so that's what Ron actually talks well, about. He gives such practical advice very, very even practical. on what it looks like as a leader in that kind of space. Yeah. It's like super practical. Yeah. I mean, you know, he actually talks about the fact that like get there early, wear your good clothes, say hello, sit with the runners, ask for help, accept criticism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff that one of the great things about this interview is you're just going to grab a notepad and go, I want to do all these things. Or yeah. if you do three of the, I think, 17 things he recommends doing. You're going to shine. Yeah. You're going to be seen as a runner. And, you know, as a business, I never really understood this until I owned a business, how important the people are that they love their job, they run fast, they enjoy it. Yeah. You know, you're looking for somebody who gets there early and, you know, does yeah. these little things. So if you're not the leader in the organization, this is actually a great list. You know, Ron's going to share with you some tips on being seen as the most prized team member yeah. by your boss. Yeah. And it's a great episode. He's also incredibly entertaining. Yeah. He's very funny. His little, he's got these little Southern one-liners mixed with that sort of Oprah mentality. I don't know what it is. It's two worlds clashing yeah, here. Yeah. I can't figure it out, but whatever it is, it makes a great charisma. Anyway, JJ, I don't want to wait any longer. Here's my conversation with Ron Clark. Ron, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, listen, you come from a teaching background, but you've got a parable here that people are crazy about, about how to help our businesses grow and how to understand kind of who's on the bus with us. How'd you go from teaching and getting all sorts of awards as a teacher to business parables? When I first started teaching, I was trying to really bring it to life and make it exciting. I wanted my students to be in love with learning. And I recognized that as I did different things in my classroom, that other teachers weren't really as interested to try. It was kind of like, keep your door closed, stay in your classroom, kind of just do what you do. And so I was afraid that we really weren't having a revolution in our profession, that people weren't learning from each other. I had a dream that one day I was going to build a school, open up all the doors, and I was going to invite educators from around the world to come see what I think an outstanding school should look like. So that is the school that we built in Atlanta, Georgia, and now 46,000 educators have come from all over the world. They come from China, Finland, Russia, India. They come to see what the best type of school in the world could be. And so we've created this business. And so not only do I teach every day, but I also run this huge organization where five to 600 educators are coming to our school each week to learn from not only how we teach, but how do we run our school and how do we run our business as well. And the problem is, I would imagine, you know, you've got kind of government and institution, you've got a union protecting teachers, you've got fixed salaries. In my opinion, 
teachers in this country do not make enough money. They are under-respected. I would love to stop some of the entitlement programs or at least shrink some entitlement programs and give teachers more money. I'd love to have, I mean, we could go on and on about how to fix education, but the point here is a lot of our organizations that we're running are very similar. There's a lot of people, you know, our profit margins are small. People may not be getting paid exactly what they deserve, those kinds of things. You're always going to have those systemic problems. You fixed it with a metaphor. You fixed it by helping teachers understand their jobs a little bit differently or how they're wired a little bit differently. Is it fair to say that? Talk to me about the metaphor of the bus. Sure. Well, it's not only for teachers. It's kind of for any business. I picture every organization like it's a bus. And however far the bus goes, that equals the success of your organization. But what really makes your organization successful or what really makes the bus travel is not so much the product or the building you're in. It's more about the people that you hire. When you have great people on your team, the bus is going to fly. So what everyone does is we cut holes in the floor of the bus, kind of like Fred Flintstone. We put our feet down and we try to make it move as quickly as possible. And the bus has different types of people. You have runners who are just, they've dropped their feet, they're killing it, they're pushing as hard as they can. You have joggers who are kind of doing, you know, what's expected. You have walkers that are kind of being pulled by the bus. And then riders, they're kind of sitting on the back of the bus and they're dead weight and everyone else has to work harder to get them to be successful and to help the bus move. So basically, this parable or the story is about how do you get people on a bus to move faster without paying them more because I couldn't pay teachers more. But how do I get them to want to move, to want to achieve excellence and want to find success for the whole organization? That's kind of the concept. Well, let's go back and talk about each little segmented audience here. You talk about runners. Describe a runner because we're all thinking about organizations and we're going to be thinking, oh, you know, Tim's a runner. What's a runner? Yeah, the runners are the best you got. They come early. They stay late. They're positive. They're not complainers. They don't get into the naggy-naggy, talk with everyone. They don't challenge authority. They just desperately want to be part of a team. They want to be part of an organization where everyone's successful. They don't need the light to shine on them very much. They're humble. They just want to really hunker down and work hard to make the organization great. You can depend on them. They're trustworthy. They're awesome. And then you've got the joggers who the joggers do their job. And I like the joggers, too, because they contribute. But joggers want more attention. Like whenever they do something, they want to make sure that everyone notices it. And when they volunteer to do something, it's more so because they want to be recognized that they volunteered or a runner volunteers because a runner just generally wants to do whatever is necessary to help the organization. So those are the main two differences between a runner who's really going above and beyond and a jogger who just does what's expected. Like in our school, teachers who like volunteer to do the yearbook committee, they'll complain about it all the time. They'll say, oh my gosh, I was up all weekend working on this yearbook. I'm not doing it next year. They're going to ask me to do it next year. I'm not doing it. Well, she's done it 20 years. She's going to do it next year, too. But they just feel the need. <laughs> and that's a jogger. You think that's a jogger, not a runner, necessarily. They're, yeah. they're, they want a little bit of the spotlight. They're playing victim a little bit. But they are contributing. They do contribute. So I actually like the joggers because, hey, they do the yearbook committee. They do a good job. But <laughs> At the end of the day. You get into walkers and riders. But before we get into walkers and riders, how do you, as a leader, and you've got a category here for leader we haven't even talked about, how do you help a jogger become a runner? Yeah. Number one, it's about who you hang out with. If you hang out with positive people who are going above and beyond, you tend to fall into that type of category. If you hang out with the negative people, you tend to be negative. There are some people in every organization, they want to point out everything that's wrong. One lady said to me, she said, well, I'm just pointing out everything that needs to be fixed. And I said, well, if you're not the one that's going to fix it, you're just making the problem worse by complaining about it. There is no perfect business. There is no perfect place to work on earth. And if you're so unhappy where you are, then 
we wish you well. Go find that perfect place for you. But every place has problems. People come from all over the world to see my school every week. We're not perfect either. We have issues too. I mean, there is no perfect place. And so I encourage people, if you want to be a runner, hang out with people who run, listen to what you talk about, stay positive, don't stay negative. You want to make sure that you're trying to be a positive member of the team, not a negative member of the team. There's things that we can all do. Don't be a victim. You set that tone from the top down. And then everybody understands this is the sort of personality I need to have at work. This is the sort of drive I need to have at work. Do you have any compensation packages? Do you clearly state that people can't stick around if they're going to continue to be joggers or walkers or riders? Tell me about how you keep that culture always evolving toward a group of runners. Yeah, well, first of all, when we hire people, we're very clear and intentional about letting them know here's exactly what we expect. And usually we interview someone three or four times before they get hired. And if they complain or if they don't want to come back for four interviews, we didn't want them anyway on our team. And then my grandma always said, if you're going to buy a cow, you best test the milk first. So before <laughs> I hire somebody, I want to watch them teach. They got to get up from the classroom and see what it looks like. And so I want to know how do they interact with kids. And so we're very clear about the types of people we want. And so then when they're not meeting our needs, because we have this analogy that we use, runners, joggers, walkers, riders, I could say we in the book or we've talked about how this is the quality of a walker. But do you see how you keep saying these things and these things are listed under what a rider would say? So it makes it easy to paint a picture of them and point it out. And they'll say, oh, I see that. I, now I recognize that now. So it's really made it easy for us to have conversations with people. But listen, as the person who's driving the bus as the leader, you've got to embody everything you want everyone to be. Some days I'll tell y'all, I don't want to go to work. I'll be in the bed. I'll think, oh my gosh, got to hit the snooze button. I'll get in the shower and I'll smear zest soap under my nose. So I don't, <laughs> want to go. I don't know if it's healthy, but that'll wake you up. And then there's been some days I've sat in the parking lot of the school and I didn't want to go inside because there's just so much pressure. And I'll just tell myself, Ron, as the leader of organization, you have one job and your one job is to be in a good mood. You got to walk wow. in there and you got to be happy. And if you can force yourself to be in a good mood, everything else falls into place. So there has never been a day I didn't walk in my school and smile. I'm high-fiving people. I'm saying, let's have a great day. And usually after about 10 minutes of doing that, I do start to feel good. But some people want to be sludge and they'll walk in and just be sludge and they'll walk up to other people. Hey, how are you doing? And then they'll start to tell their problems. So you just have to, as a leader, not fall into that trap. Well, I want to get into leadership in a second because you're going to give us some tips on how to actually be the leader of a culture that gets things done. I want to talk also to just average team members, people who kind of, you know, as you read this book, a lot of us are probably a little bit convicted. We see, oh, man, I'm definitely a jogger sometimes. Oh, my goodness, I'm a walker sometimes. And you actually go through 17 principles on how to accelerate, how to become a runner. Can you go through those with us? The first is get there early. Everyone knows what time you come to work. Everyone knows what time you leave. Everyone's watching you. Think about the people that you work with. You probably know in your organization who's the best. You know who stays positive. You know when they take a long lunch and when they don't. So sometimes people think that you can see everyone else, but you don't stop to realize, oh, everyone can see you too. You're not invisible. Everyone knows what you're contributing to the organization. And so sometimes doing little things like coming early, when we have our meetings, we have staff meetings at four or five every day. And we have some people who want to come rolling in at 4.08 or 4.10. And what I had to tell them was that by coming in at 4.10, 
you think that the only person that's been affected is you because you missed five minutes of a meeting. But really, you've affected the entire team because we've had to wait for you because we didn't want to start without you. And so we're sitting there trying to be respectful of your time, but you're not being respectful of ours. And so when I kind of put it in the picture where they realized, oh, my actions affect not only me, but everyone, that kind of helped as well. Sometimes the small things, for example, in our school, whenever we do events or we have food that needs to be picked up or we have trash that needs to be taken out, we don't have one janitor in our, in our building. We have 140 janitors. Everybody who's in that building, you're responsible for the work. You're responsible for cleaning out the trash. You're responsible for picking something up off the floor. There's small things that you can do to show that not only do I care about my work here, I care about this building, this organization. Let's take pride in it. Let's be a team. Let's work together. I mean, here's a basic one. Number two, wear your good clothes. Listen, educators across America, a lot of people dress really sloppy. When I first started teaching, there were teachers wearing sweatpants and jeans to teach in. And then come Friday was the dress down day. And I was like, where are we going from here? What are we going on Friday? I just said to myself, I'm a professional. I want to dress nicely. I want to wear a suit. I couldn't afford it. So I got my Uncle JB's clothes because of Michael's clothes. They were too small for me. They had suits that I didn't. And what I found is that when I dressed like I cared about how I looked when I put attention into my appearance, people seem to realize that, oh, if you put attention into your appearance, you tend to put attention into other areas as well. You're taking this seriously. So dressing up, you don't want to be the worst dressed person in the building. You want to be the best dressed person. <laughs> and sometimes you may not be working as hard as others, but because you look better, people will think, oh, that's a hard worker. I know it's so wrong, but it's actually true. There was a point, I think it was five years ago, I had to throw away every every piece of clothing that I had that didn't look good because I will go to comfort every time, every time. And I finally just had to throw them all away. What I love about this, they're just incredibly practical. I mean, these are little things. They're not philosophical. They're little things that you can actually do. Number three, say hello. Yeah. It amazed me when I first went to teach in New York City. I would walk in the hall and teachers wouldn't even say hello to me. And it just I felt so alone and it felt so cold. And then I watched that the teachers didn't speak to kids either. But I watched my parents. And as I grew up, my parents, like when we went to the pick Louis the grocery store, my mom would talk to everybody down every aisle. How's Mary Beth? Didn't her granddad get that colonoscopy? I mean, so <laughs> everybody was talking to everybody in my family. And then one time I won this award and I went to the White House and President Clinton was there. I went up to him and I said, the best teacher I've ever known in my life staying Barbara Jones. But she's shy. Would you mind going over there behind that Christmas tree where she is and tell her you're proud of her? And he said, come with me. And we walked over there behind the Christmas tree and he took her hands and put them close. And he said, Barbara Jones, I love you. And I am so proud of you. And her neck got all red. And she said <laughs> later that the way he looked at her in the eyes and the way that he made her feel made her feel so special. So successful people, whether it's my parents or the president, they tend to look people in the eyes, make a connection, say hello, let people know that you see them. And so when you walk through the building, sometimes, you know, people will, just because you didn't say hello, they'll think you don't like them. They'll think you're stuck up. They'll think you're unapproachable. So it's just something simple, a kind hello and a smile. It says something of you that you actually went to the president and rather than monopolizing his time for yourself, thought about somebody else. I don't want to miss that lesson there either. Number four, Ron, sit with the runners. The runners are the people in the building who are doing the best job. They tend to be planning something. Runners are always people who have ideas. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And if you can sit with them and kind of get involved and find out what they're working on, then what you can do is you can kind of jump in. You can assist. You can be part of that team, part of that energy. And sometimes because you hang out with runners, you may not be the one that's doing the most, but because you hang out with them, you'll be in good favor as well. Ask for help. Number five. 
yeah, don't be afraid to ask for help because, oh, it's one of my biggest pet peeves. When I have people on my team, a lot of people will say, oh, I didn't want to bother you. I wasn't sure how to handle the situation, but I didn't want to have to come to you with it. And I beg my staff, please, I beg you, come to me. I'd rather you text me and ask me, email, ask me a thousand questions for clarity than to get on a road that it wasn't the right road to go down. Don't be afraid to come to me or to come to anyone on the staff to say, I want to get some clarification here. How should I handle the situation? How would you like me to move forward? Because what I find is that about 80% of the mistakes my staff has made is because they didn't check in with me to get clarification on an issue. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Ron Clark in just a moment. Just recently, my wife and I came back from a resort in Jamaica. It was called Round Hill. It's actually a beautiful place if you ever get to go. And I'm sitting by the ocean sidebar. You know how they have those ocean sidebars? There's a tree growing out of the middle and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting across. I realize I'm sitting across from Chris Wallace. This is Mike Wallace's son. This is the newscaster at Fox News who I think he moderated the Trump-Clinton debate. And I'm a politics geek, right? I actually never talked to him the whole time because they were on vacation. So if Chris Wallace hears this, just know you had a geek fan that was sitting there. I'm a huge fan of him and his work and his political commentary and just the integrity of his career. And then it happens. His wife starts talking to the person next to her, and she starts talking about a cauliflower pizza crust from a company called Cauliflower Foods. And I realize, oh my goodness, that's one of our clients. Like, that's a full circle kind of thing. This client came to us, Cauliflower Foods. They were making a quarter million dollars a year selling cauliflower pizza crust. And by the way, we've tried them. They are exceptional. And I'm realizing, wow, you know, a quarter million dollar company is being talked about. And then come to find out from JJ, we actually came to our live workshop in Nashville. They clarified their message. They redid all of their marketing collateral. And in one year, I find out, after that live workshop, they go from a quarter million to $7 million. $7 million. A quarter million to $7 million in one year. They did a lot of great things. I mean, they really worked hard. They have an incredible product. But after they clarified their message, they changed their website. They changed their product packaging. Their messaging became really clear. They got an account with Costco. They started shipping a lot more cauliflower pizza crust to people's doors. If you want to check them out, go to cauliflower, C-A-L-I-F-L-O-U-R foods.com and check them out. By the way, they haven't paid us anything for that. We just love our clients. They clarified their message and they blew up. I love hearing about our clients out in the wild. I love it because what we want to do at StoryBrand is hand the microphone to the right people, to good people who run good businesses, who create great products and employ really wonderful people. That's who we want to hand the microphone to. But it all happens when you clarify your message. I say all this to say for them, their quarter million to $7 million story began at a live marketing workshop. We have one happening April 29th to May 1st, and I really want to see you there. When you sign up for the live workshop at storybrand.com, we will help you clarify your message, and then we will take you through basically the StoryBrand marketing roadmap. We help you wireframe a website, come up with an elevator pitch, and even understand how an email marketing campaign works. In other words, we help you clarify your message and then create the very marketing collateral that will give you an incredible return on your small investment for being at the workshop. Get away for two days. Join business leaders and clarify your message. The April 29th workshop will sell out a couple weeks before it even takes place. There's no question on this one. It is going to sell out. So register today at storybrand.com and maybe your story will be told by strangers around a poolside bar in Jamaica. We hope so. 
it's hard to give criticism to anybody as a leader. I'm not good at it. I'm still trying to figure out how to do it. But man, the people that I work with who can accept light criticism because they're so tough and they're so driven, they want it, you know? And number six is accept criticism. I just find those people are so much easier to work with. I like them so much more when they can do that. What is the benefit of accepting criticism? Oh my gosh. In this workforce today, we have a lot of people who were children who have been raised in a coddled, wussified society of America. (laughs) America right now is all about making sure the self-esteem of children is high, making sure kids feel good about themselves. Everyone on the Little League team gets a trophy these days. I know. But really, who should get the trophy? The MVP should get the trophy. And when your child says, but why did I get the MVP or trophy? Because you ain't the MVP, get in the car. (laughs) But what we do instead, we want to give them the trophy and make sure they feel good. So I'm telling you, I'm teaching these kids every day. Kids in America, coddled, wussified, they're soft. And so we end up having this generation of kids who don't really want to achieve and they don't really want to accept criticism. So what I find with my staff is that I'll say thanks to my young staff members like this. Hey, I really wish you hadn't said that to the parent. The reason why the parent got upset is how you said it. Next time say it this way, the parent won't get so upset. And my young staff members who are 24 to 34 year olds will say, oh, well, in my defense, no one has ever told me and they want to defend themselves. And I'll say, well, there's no need to defend yourself. I'm just saying next time, say it this way. And they'll say, well, I just feel like I'm being attacked right now. I don't like the way I'm being made to feel. It's a crisis. But the runners are great. Runners are awesome. So whenever I hire somebody. I explained this point to them. Everybody's going to make mistakes. And really, as a runner and as a driver of the bus, I completely expect for everyone to make mistakes. And it's okay. We're all human. But when you make a mistake, there's one of two ways to handle it. You can say, oh, I'm sorry. No problem. It won't happen again. We tinker with the bus a little bit. Like we had a little flat tire. We tinker with it. The bus keeps going. Everything's great. Or it could become drama. There's some people, when they make a mistake, instead of accepting the criticism, they go around the whole organization. They tell everybody they got bust out. They tell everybody, I guess you probably already heard by now what happened to me. I got bust out. And it just creates this victim-type mentality. And so I tell everybody when we hire them, whenever I tell you you did something wrong, if you just say, I'm so sorry, it won't happen again, you learn from it, and we keep on moving, and it's over because I don't have enough time to dwell on the drama. So it's something that we impart upon new people, and it helps a lot. We've lucked out. I've never had that problem on my staff, but I've had it with some friends just recently. I had it when I I was texting with a guy, and I made some criticism because he was doing stuff in public that I didn't think he needed to be doing. And he got so defensive, and he said, you know, you're being a bully. And I said, no, I'm using tough language to a leader. If you want me to be soft with you, you just tell me. You kind of shut it up. There is this thing of, hey, leaders just have to, it's not about you. It's about the agenda. It's about the mission. I love that advice, Ron. All right, number seven. We're going to go through 10 of the 17. You have to get the book if you want the rest of them. Number seven, clean the windshield. What does that mean? Yeah, sometimes when you are in an organization, it's like people don't have clear direction. Everyone Mm -hmm. doesn't know where they're going. Sometimes people get in each other's lanes. So as a leader, I think it's very important that I'm always letting everyone know, okay, here's our goal. Here's where we are. Let's give an update. Let's stay focused. And I found that sometimes when people make a mistake on my team, I ask myself this, was I clear about my expectations? Now, if I was very clear with you about what I expected, I'm going to hold you accountable. But honestly, if I say, you know what, I wasn't really as clear, I see where there was a misunderstanding, I don't hold them responsible at all. So it's make sure that everyone's clear about where we're going and their expectations. All right, number eight, take the hint. 
sometimes people don't quite understand the body cues and they don't understand verbals from other people in the organization. So you need to learn to read body language. If someone has their arms crossed, if someone's in a closed conversation, I talk about more in the book, but it's more about subtle things that a lot of people seem to be oblivious to. But if you understood these subtle cues that people are giving you around the workplace, it's very telling. Sometimes people won't say things to you, but if you notice subtle things, you can put it together. Yeah, it was a huge thing. I remember a long time ago, I was in a group. I usually led the group. I led the meeting, and I wasn't leading that day. And the guy who was leading me pulled me aside, and he said, hey, did you realize you talked really loudly during that meeting with a negative message? And I said, man, I didn't say anything during the meeting. I don't know what you're talking about. I literally didn't say a word. He said, exactly. Wow. You talked so loud. And that was one of the best lessons I ever learned, that if I'm not leading and I'm sitting there with folding my arms and dozing off and looking at the floor... I'm speaking louder than bombs. Exactly. And I didn't know. I mean, I really didn't. I thought, well, I'm not leading this meeting. I don't have any obligation here. I can daydream. <laughs> Had no idea. All right. Stay in your lane. Yeah, I've got some staff members. I even have one right now that I'm still trying to work on this with, but I'll use her as an example without saying who she is. She has a lot of responsibilities at our school, and we really put a lot on her. She's an incredible worker. But the problem is she's got so much to do, but she's a giver, and she wants to make sure everyone's taken care of. So she tends to float around the building, and when she sees that other people are struggling or they need help with something, she wants to jump in and help them with their projects. So she ends up on weekends working on their projects, doing stuff for other people. And so I've given everything everyone while I think is a fair amount of tasks. And so, but what she's doing is she's taking things off of other people's plates because she just wants to help people. She likes to contribute. So on one hand, I love that she has that type of compassion for others, but where it's a problem is that sometimes her projects have been late. Her projects are late because she's helping other people. And she really says that she can't help herself. She just naturally loves to help other people. It's something we're working through now. And then, like, right now we have this committee that's working on, you know, active shooter training, which is something that's going on in schools all across the country. So we're working on this active shooter training, and we have this committee who's doing a great job. But someone who's not on the committee, she's in charge of a different committee, she keeps piping in and emailing, and she's researched. She's found all these people she wants to have coming to the school. So she's, like, emailing and bombarding them, but it's not her committee. And so they're very annoyed with her. They don't want to say anything to her, but it's very annoying. Sometimes people don't realize if it's not your lane, and you're trying to jump in that lane, that um, you're going to bother other people and rub them the wrong way. And finally, the last one I want to talk about, you've got 17 of them. I'm only going to cover 10. One of them that I really liked is listen more than you talk. That's counterintuitive, but I find that leaders do that. Yeah. Whenever I go into a meeting, whether it's with a staff member, and honestly, sometimes parents are upset because their child got an attention and their child has a failing grade. So I've learned when I sit down with people, I usually will start off by saying something like, if there's an issue, I'll say, well, you know what? I'm sorry you're upset right now, but I think this is wonderful that you've come to me because we're going to fix this. I care about you. I care about your kid. Let's work together. I want to hear everything you have to say. And then I just shut up and I let the people talk for a long time. And some people, my goodness, they can talk a lot. Sometimes <laughs> my staff will say something wrong. They'll say, and you didn't even let us know that we were going to have to work on the work day. And so I was under the assumption, but in my head, I know I'd already emailed everybody and I can pull it up, but I don't even say anything. I just let them talk and talk and talk and talk. Then once everything is over, there's a little psychology trick I do where I say, is there anything else that you wanted to get off your chest? Then I say, well, I want you to know that I heard everything that you said and I listened to you. And then I say this, would you mind if I took a couple of minutes from my perspective to explain a couple of the issues that you brought up by asking someone if they mind if you bring up a couple of the points? It's already getting them to a point 
that when they say yes, it's almost like psychologically they're agreeing that they're going to receive what you're saying. It just works. Just trust me. I'll pull out the forms or I'll show the email and then everybody always gets embarrassed and say, oh my gosh, I didn't see that. But I've learned just to let the other person talk, remain calm, never defensive. Also, another thing that helps a lot is that when somebody's crazy, because <laughs> we got some crazy people in this world, <laughs> and whenever they're crazy, I've just learned just to feel sorry for them. Instead of being angry with them or upset with them, I just always feel sorry for them. And I try to say, oh, my goodness, what must be going on in his or her life? That helps deal with people, even the people who are the most difficult to deal with. Ron, as we listen to you, I know my listeners are sitting there going, wow, this is a lot. It feels like I'm going to have to become a much further evolved person to be this kind of leader. I would imagine, though, at some point, you know, you're starting your school, you got all these hundreds of people and then thousands of people coming in to study your school. You had to sit down and create a framework in order to clearly explain expectations for your team members, define those expectations, keep them accountable, make them public. Did the book Move Your Bus and the framework itself come out of that kind of necessity? It did. I think the more specific you are with people, the better the results will be. This actually started about 24 years ago when I was working with my first classes of students. My kids were disrespectful and they were rude. But my grandmother had taught me all these rules growing up about how to treat people, common courtesies. So I wrote down all her rules and a list of 55 things. And I taught these 55 Southern manners to my students in my class who were disrespectful. And what happens is that the class completely changed. They started saying, yes, sir, no, sir, picking up trash. They would bump into people and say, after you, excuse me. So I was like, oh, my goodness, when you're specific with people, the results wow. are great. Wow. When Oprah yeah. Winfrey heard about my list of rules, she said, I should put it into a book. So I wrote a book about it called The Essential 55, and then she made it one of her book picks. And then all the money from that book went into a foundation. And that's how we started the school in Atlanta. And then I said to myself, well, if being specific with kids works, I bet it works with adults as well. So with my staff, I tried to put together a framework where we could be successful. It would be clear. Everyone understand what was expected because I wanted to be proactive and avoid a situation where I had staff drama. And also when you have 500 to 600 people in your building each week from all over the world watching how you handle every decision, how you get along with each other, how you they wanted to learn from us. I had to make sure that I put a framework together that would be solid and it would be as perfect as it could be to get a group of people to be successful. This is fantastic. I mean, you know, everybody really just wants to know what's expected of them and you gave them some clear direction. All right. The other thing that you have in the book though are some examples for leaders, some things that leaders can do to help their organizations apply these principles, allow runners to shine, help joggers be their best selves, show walkers how to improve, equip people to meet your expectations, go right to the source when there is a problem, show appreciation, and enjoy the ride. I'd like to get into all of them. We're limited on time though, Ron. Talk to me about the importance of enjoying the ride. Yeah, I'll talk to you about that, but mainly I want to hit the one key point of what you just said because I don't want to miss that one. Yeah. But um, enjoying the ride, if people in the organization aren't having fun, and honestly, if you're not having fun, what's the point? You know, in an organization where you can find a way to have laughter and humor and get along with people, the organization is going to be much more successful. But as a leader, the most important thing I have learned is that when you look at your bus and you've got runners and joggers and walkers and riders, put all your focus on your runners. A lot of leaders will say, I need to focus on the other people because my runners are doing a great job. But what happens when you focus on riders and walkers, they may improve a little bit, but they're never going to run. Let's be real about it. They're never going to be what you want them to be. And you're going to be miserable trying to help them. What I have found, if you want to completely have a revolution in your organization, you spend all of your time 
with your runners, uplifting runners, cheering for them, validating them, getting them the resources they need, letting them know they're valued. When you put that as your focus, what's going to happen is they're going to work so much harder for you and everyone else in the organization who isn't receiving that attention. They would try and move more toward that speed because they want to get your attention as well. What do you do with the riders and walkers who are never going to evolve? I mean, do you just sit down and say, I think this is the wrong place for you to be? I don't think you should be working here. Well, I used to have a really hard time with it. I used to not really know how to do it. But once I had the framework of runners, joggers, and we sat down and I said, okay, where do you think you fall on this bus? And it amazed me. They always were accurate. They'd always say, I think I'm a rider. I think I'm a walker here. And I would say, okay, so we've got two options. I said, we can look at some strategies and ways to help you jog or run, or maybe this isn't the right place for you, but I'd love for us to try and help you walk or go faster and to run so you can stay here. How do you feel? And they always say, well, yes, I'd like to stay here possible. And so then we say, well, here's some things. We put together a little framework of what you need to do. It's kind of all in the book. And then we meet back together periodically we see are you improving where are you on this bus and then we have a conversation about maybe this isn't the right bus for you you'd probably have here somewhere else ron incredible conversation the book is called move your bus an extraordinary new approach to accelerating success in work and life if you feel like your company or organization is missing a framework this one costs about 20 bucks grab it on amazon (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot easier ron thanks so much wonderful conversation thank you take care That guy's going to get the most out of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, his charisma came off in the interview. Yeah. You watch the videos, you realize this guy would be really fun to work for. And it would be a completely different life experience. Yeah. I and mean, you would end up, you'd be a trophy human being. I mean, by the end of well, it. Well, you and I have talked about this is that I've been saying I want to up my wardrobe game lately. And it's like, okay, it's just time. Like, it's just time. Like, it really is. <laughs> I, I, I just need a that. couple more shirts to kind of up that game a little bit. And that's where I want to be. And yeah, this reminded me. Yeah, it's just time into, to go and get them. When you get into a culture that makes you do that, I think it's worth it. Yeah. Anyway, for our leaders out there, you can create this kind of culture. The book really shows you how this interview was super helpful. Yeah. And if you're not a leader, do these things. I guarantee you, your boss is going to notice. Yeah. You know, there's people who come on staff here. They're here for three months before we're like, how in the world do we move them up? Yeah. How do yep. we move them up? Because they do these things, it actually works. Hey, next week is my friend Michael Hyatt. Yes. We interview Mike. Mike and I have known each other for, uh, geez, 10, 15 years now. He is one of the most inspirational people that I know. He is a guide for me and Betsy. In fact, we just booked dinner. We probably have dinner with him once a year, and then I see Mike maybe about four times a year. He's got a new product out called Full Focus Planner. You know I'm a planner junkie. Yeah, yeah you are. <laughs> and I've actually already signed up for his November. It's really cool. It's really cool. And it's I signed really up for cool. his November workshop. Did yeah. you know that? Yeah, I did. I've actually signed up and I'm going to his November workshop, but he's got one coming up before then that I wasn't able to make it to. But we talk about what it actually takes to create a plan, stick with a plan, and get things done. Yeah. And he's got a really unique psychological focus on it. Yeah. So if you, you know, kind of that beginning of the year thought, yeah, it's time now. Yeah. You know what I noticed? I joined a gym in December. Went a bunch of times in December, packed in January. Yeah. Yep. Pretty crowded in February. Nobody there in March. Yep. And I'm like, Every wow, year. I made it. Yeah. Like if you can actually start your year at the end of March, like the yeah. end of the first <laughs> yeah. quarter, and have the energy that you have in January, yeah. you're going to crush the yeah, competition. Seriously. Mike's really going to help you do that. Here's a little tidbit of my conversation with Michael Hyatt. Here's the thing about habit goals, and I distinguish between achievement goals and habit goals. And a daily ritual could be looked at as a habit or a collection of habits. 
Most of us have heard somewhere that it takes 21 days to establish a habit. That's completely without merit. There is no research that substantiates that. All the research on goal achievement and habit formation says that it takes a minimum of 66 repetitions to form a habit. So I usually shoot for 70 days. It can take as many, as long as 120 days, but I think of it as achieved when it's been installed into my system and I no longer have to think about it. So for me, like for years, I hate to admit this, but for years I didn't floss, <laughs> right? And then somebody said to me, you know, you don't have to floss except for the teeth that you want to keep. So I said, okay, <laughs> that makes sense. So now I literally cannot go to bed. I don't care if it's one o'clock in the morning, I'm stumbling back to my hotel room and I've had a long work day. I will floss before I go to bed because it's an installed habit. My daily rituals, uh, the same thing. So I would say probably 70 days, but you don't have to have a hundred percent compliance. So I have something I call a compliance standard. And I think for most people about 95%. So if I'm getting 95% of those 70 days, that's good. I don't have to restart. You know, I'm, I'm good. All right, so that's something to look forward to next week. If you haven't already subscribed to the Building a Story Run podcast, go on iTunes and subscribe today. Another great podcast, JJ. Yeah. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to move your bus. <laughs> <laughs>